way back when I was man, maybe 16 years old, I volunteered to be a counselor at a summer camp for a cabin full of young boys. Now, before I tell you my story, I just I, I, I want to assure all moms and dads here, we would never at Christ Community Church never entrust your kids to the kind of counselor I was. Okay? <laughs> I, just, I, I just want you to understand that before I tell you the story. Every night, I would tell my cabin of boys a scary story in my creepiest voice. I mean, we would turn off the lights, and they would be huddled in their sleeping bags. And I told them about this deranged guy who had recently escaped from an insane asylum in the area and was hiding out in the woods next to the camp. Yeah. The, the second night, I decided to elaborate still further on the story. I said, you know, yesterday, somebody broke into the archery shed on our, at our camp, and they stole a bow and arrows. And today, police, looking for the deranged guy in the woods, found three hikers with arrows through their hearts. I was pretty deranged, huh? <laughs> so the next night, oh, it got better. The next night, I, I brought a friend of mine in on the, you know, the whole deal guy who was teaching archery at the camp, while I'm telling the kids their bedtime story, he shoots an arrow into the door of the cabin. <laughs> and so the kids hear this thwop, and I run to the door and I open it up and there's this arrow quivering. And now they're quivering too. I mean, they're sleeping with pocket knives and baseball bats. And... Well, the next morning, a couple of them, they go to the camp director and they said, uh, we want to call our mom and dad and ask them to come pick us up. And the camp director asked why, and they explained, and then he hauled me in. And he said, you got about 10 minutes to get your cabinet boys together and tell them the truth, or you'll be calling your mommy and daddy, and they're going to come pick you up. All right, so I got my boys together, and this is the funny part of the story. I told them the truth, and they didn't believe me. I had done such a good job convincing them of the lie, and I told the lie so consistently over a several-day period, they refused to believe the truth. One little boy said to me, oh, you just don't want us to be afraid. I'm thinking, dude, I've been trying to scare the bejeebers out of you all week long. <laughs> you know? And another boy said, you just don't want to ruin the reputation of the camp. You know, People will, will hear that there's a murderer in the woods, and they won't send their kids here. And I said, Probably not, but... Here's the point I want to make. We can grow so accustomed to lies that we refuse to believe the truth. We can grow so accustomed to lies that we just refuse to believe the truth. And this is especially the case with regard to spiritual matters. Okay, did you know that the Bible calls Satan's, uh, Satan, God's arch enemy, calls him the father of lies? The father of lies. The apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, that Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the glory, the, the, uh, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Satan fills our minds with lies so that we can't see the truth about God, about Christ, about our need for salvation. So if you're a Christ follower here today, how'd that happen? Huh? If, you, if you were captive to lies, what set you free to believe in the truth? And if you've got a friend at school or at work or a neighbor who is not a Christ follower, you'd love to see them come to know Christ. What is ever going to free them from their captivity to lies so that they can come to the truth? And this goes back to the question 
you know, raised by, by my story, you know, if, if we've been leave, living according to lies for such a long time, what will ever set us free? We're going to find an answer to that question today in the scripture that we're looking at. It's John chapter 16. So would you turn with me to John 16? We are in the fifth week of a seven-part series called Dinner in a Hostile World. Kind of an odd title for a series. Now let me explain it to you. This is teaching that Jesus gave his closest followers the night before he was crucified. He gathered his 12 disciples together in the upper room of a house in Jerusalem. And over dinner, he taught them what the world was going to be like once he left. He was telling them he was going to die, be resurrected, ascend back to heaven. And they were going to be living in a hostile world. In fact, anybody today who decides to live for Christ, anybody who decides to follow Jesus and live according to his morals and his values and his priorities and his mission, you're going to find the world to be a hostile place. So Jesus takes four chapters in the Gospel of John, John 14, 15, 16, 17, to spell out over dinner what it's going to be like to live in a hostile world, how to thrive in a hostile world. And one of the emphases of this teaching is the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells his followers about the Holy Spirit. Now, we introduced this topic several weeks ago in John 14, but there are five different passages within these four chapters that address the topic of the Holy Spirit. Back in, in, in John 14, we learned that Jesus sends the Holy Spirit into the heart, into the life of everyone who surrenders to him. He goes back to heaven, sends the Spirit. The Spirit comes to indwell people who surrender to Christ. If you're a Christ follower, if Jesus is your Savior and King, the Holy Spirit of God has come to live on the inside. And one of his principal roles in your life, we learned according to John 14, is to guide you daily into God's truth, to keep you on God's path. He does that by making God's book come alive to you. You read it and it's like, you know, not at all like before you, you came to know Christ and the Spirit came to live on the inside when it was a boring book. Suddenly it comes alive. It speaks to you. God's Spirit helps you make application to your life and then he helps you walk out those applications in practice, in truth, gives you the will to obey God. In fact, the sermon that we did several weeks ago is called obedience because that's the, the role of the Holy Spirit is to keep you walking God's path. In fact, I'd say if you miss that sermon, please go online, listen to it because you can't live a Christ-following life aside from the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You need the Holy Spirit. You need to know what he's up to in your life. But when we get to chapter 16 and Jesus returns to the topic of, of the Holy Spirit, there's, there's a, a little different spin. He repeats some of the stuff he said back in chapter 14 about the role of the Holy Spirit in believers' lives, but he also teaches us about the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of an unbeliever. And as far as I know, this is the only text in the entire Bible that addresses that topic. Everywhere else you read about the work of the Holy Spirit, it has to do with the lives of believers. But today in John 16, Jesus has something to say about the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a person who's not yet trusted Christ, who's not yet surrendered to Christ. And it's got something to do, the Holy Spirit's role's got something to do with that dilemma we talked about at the opening of the sermon. How do you get from believing lies to believing the truth? The answer is, well, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. He is God's great convincer. He's God's great persuader. 
So if your Bible is open to John chapter 16, let me read the first few verses to you. We're going to begin reading at verse 5. Kind of jumps into the middle of a sentence, middle of a paragraph. That's where we left off though last week. So verse 5 of John 16 begins, Jesus says, Now I'm going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? By the way, if you were with us back in John 14, you might say, well, that's strange because they did ask him, where are you going? And now Jesus says, you never asked, where are you going? What Jesus is saying here is, you know, back when you asked, where are you going in John 14, you were so distraught, you were so overcome with grief. Fact of the matter is, you didn't want an answer. You weren't listening. Okay? You weren't able to hear what I said. You pick that up in the very next verse, verse 6. Rather, you are filled with grief because I've said these things. Verse 7, but very truly I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Okay, what is the title that Jesus gives the Holy Spirit in verse 7? All four campuses, what is it? The advocate. And I explained to you several weeks ago what this title means. It, It comes from a Greek word, parakaleo, which means one called alongside of to encourage and exhort. One called alongside of to encourage and exhort. Now, different versions of the English Bible translate this in a variety of ways. Some call the Holy Spirit the comforter or the counselor or the companion. And I said to you a few weeks ago, those are too weak in translation. The word is much stronger in the original. In fact, in ancient Greek culture, the the parakaleo, that was activity of a lawyer, an attorney, A person who would be in your corner in the courtroom. Yes, he would be your comforter, your counselor, your companion, but he was much more than that. You need this super savvy defense attorney, if you would. So that's his role in the life of a Christ follower. What is the role of God's attorney, God's advocate, in the life of an unbeliever? Well, we're going to find out from what Jesus has to say. It's not the role of a super-savvy defense lawyer. It's the role of a super-savvy prosecuting attorney. You say, oh, that doesn't sound so good. Well, it's not good if you insist on resisting the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. But Jesus is about to tell us in John 16 that as the prosecuting attorney, the goal of the Holy Spirit is not to condemn you. The goal of the Holy Spirit is to convince you. Convince you of what? Convince you to stop believing the lies and start believing the truth. Three things in particular. Number one, write this down in your outline if you haven't taken it out yet. Number one, the Holy Spirit convinces about sin. Now we're going to go back to the text. We left off at verse 7, pick it up at verse 8. When he comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment about sin because people do not believe in me. Okay, part of the Holy Spirit's job, Jesus says, is to prove the world to be in the wrong about sin. Stop there. The world has a pretty twisted sense of sinfulness and unsinfulness, right and wrong, right? If, if you say to someone, well, you know, according to the Bible, that behavior is sinful, What kind of response are you likely to get? You know, you're one of those Bible thumpers. Didn't Jesus tell you you're not supposed to judge? You ever heard that one? 
You know, Jesus is constantly cited as the poster child for tolerance, as if he was an anything-goes kind of guy. You know, he just wandered around with that sweet, sweet smile on his face, talking about love, 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 love. Never mentioned sin, really. You know, if that's what you think, if that's what you've bought into, this is Jesus never talks about sin, only about love and about tolerance. You've never read Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount recorded in the Gospel of Matthew chapters 5 through 7. You know, far from watering down the notion of sin, in that famous sermon of Jesus, he intensifies the standard of right and wrong. Listen to just a few excerpts from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder. Well, I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to God's judgment. Whoa. Later on in the sermon, chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. Well, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. A little further on in the sermon, same chapter, Matthew 5, verses 43 and 44, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor. Well, I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. See, Jesus constantly raises the bar, doesn't lower it when it comes to a standard of right and wrong. If you think Jesus is soft on sin, you just don't know the real Jesus, which is exactly Jesus' point about himself in the verses I read to you a moment ago. Go back to John 16, verses 8 and 9. After Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin, righteousness, and judgment, he says in verse 9, about sin, because people do not believe in me. See, if people, listen, if people believed in the real Jesus, if people got to know the teaching of the real Jesus, they would have a whole different outlook on sin. They, they would not only have a heightened sense of what sin is, they would also be more, more keenly of, aware of the fact that they themselves are sinners. Do you have a realistic picture of your own sinfulness? You think you can spot sin in your life? And if you can, does it bother you? Yeah, I love the story that Billy Graham, world-famous evangelist, tells to illustrate what I've just been saying. In fact, I've told his story a number of times myself. Graham says that there was a day when a, uh, a television station wanted to come do an interview with him. And they said, we'd love to do this on site in your home, your mountain home in Montreat, North Carolina. And so the night before the, the interview, Billy and his wife Ruth, they decided they'd like to have the interview in the family room. So they went to the family room and they cleaned it top to bottom. I mean, they dusted every corner, they vacuumed it, they rearranged the furniture. The room had never looked so good. It was spotless, or so they thought. But the next day, the production crew arrived, and they plugged in all those bazillion-watt camera lights. And when they turned them on, Graham said he and his wife looked around, and they saw every speck of dust they missed. And they said, we were so embarrassed. And then Dr. Graham drives the analogy home. He says, that's like the role of the Holy Spirit. He illuminates our lives. If we're living with the illusion that we're pretty good people, the Holy Spirit, bam, he shines the light and we see every speck of sin, every bit of gossip, 
selfishness, greed, materialism, lust, dishonesty. We see it all in living color. We see stuff we would never see except for the Holy Spirit. In fact, the matter is, even if we could see all our sin, it wouldn't bother us. I mean, we'd find some way to explain it away. We'd say, yeah, it's not as bad as it looks. But the Holy Spirit's job, Jesus says, is to not let us off the hook. Go back to verse 8, John 16. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will prove. Now, if you've got your own Bible, circle the word prove. I'm going to give you another definition here in a moment that you could write in the margin. He will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin. The word prove here, according to Bible scholars, carries with it a sense of putting to shame. Just write in the margin of your Bible, put to shame. In other words, when the Holy Spirit reveals our sin to us, we won't be able to brush it off with a cavalier, yeah, so what? That's no big deal. When the Holy Spirit reveals our sin to us, our likely response will be, well, that's pretty gross. Gosh, I'm a bigger mess than I thought I was. I don't like what I see. Now, if you're a Christ follower today, it's because at some point in your past, the Holy Spirit convinced you you had a sin problem that had to be dealt with, right? You finally decided one day this can't go on like this. And if you're not yet a Christ follower, if you've never consciously, deliberately surrendered to Christ, the work of God's Spirit in your heart, first and foremost, is to convince you of your need, to convince you of your sin. Now, there's a second thing he wants to persuade you about. Number two, the Holy Spirit convinces about righteousness. About righteousness. If uh, you have a friend who is a recovering alcoholic, and I have, you know, I have several friends in that camp, you will probably hear from them at some point in time, well, at least I was not a drug addict. You know, if you have a friend in that camp, you've, you've probably heard that. And every time I hear something like that, it reminds me of a human tendency we all have, even when we become convinced of our own sin, we like to compare our brand of sinfulness with others' brand of sinfulness and conclude, well, at least I'm not as bad as other people I know. You see how that game is played? You know, I may lose my temper, but at least I don't beat my kids like some people do. I may watch porn online, but at least I haven't cheated on my wife with another woman. You know, I may be sleeping with my boyfriend, but at least, you know, it's not like it's a gay relationship. Or I may lie to my parents, but I'm not flunking my classes in school. Yes, we know we're sinners, we've done wrong things, but at least we're more righteous than other people we know. Now, here's the problem, friends, with comparing our level of righteousness with other people's level of righteousness. And the biggest problem is not what you think it is. The biggest problem is not simply that you see yourself as better than others. That is gross. It's pridefully gross. But there's a bigger problem. The bigger problem is that you see yourself is good enough for God. 
you know, you, you think if God took all your good stuff and he put it on one end of the scale and he put your bad stuff on the other, surely your good would outweigh your bad and your righteousness would gain you entrance into God's eternal kingdom. And if that's what you've been thinking, I want you to listen to these chilling words from the prophet Isaiah, the Old Testament. Isaiah 64, verse 6, just one line. Isaiah says, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. He's pointing out that on God's scale, even our righteousness doesn't measure up. Even the good things we do are, are so often tainted by pride or selfishness or a desire to impress others with who we are. In fact, the expression Isaiah uses, righteousness like filthy rags, is pretty gross in the original. In his culture of filthy rag, this was an expression used of a woman's menstrual cloth. So during her time of the month, this is what she used to wipe herself clean. So, you know, paraphrased today would be our righteous acts compared to God's standard of righteousness like a used tampon. Now, some of you in your heart right now, your back's getting up. And you're arguing with me and you're saying, well, you're not describing me. And I'm not surprised if you're arguing with me in your heart because nobody admits on their own that they're deficient in this area of righteousness. Nobody. Nobody prays at their own initiative, God have mercy on me because I'm a sinner. Jesus teaches it takes the Holy Spirit doing his job to convince us of the truth about righteousness. Or, or in our case, the truth of our unrighteousness. And go back to John 16, verse 8 says, The Holy Spirit will prove the world to be in the wrong. About what? Number one, about sin. Number two, about righteousness. And then you drop down to verse 10 to see what Jesus says about righteousness. Verse, verse 10, about righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. Now, the first couple times I read that, I thought, well, that's a strange statement. He's, he's talking about righteousness, and then he switches gears. He talks about himself. I'm going to the Father where you can't see me. What's the link? Here's the link, friends. There, there is a link between righteousness and the person of Jesus Christ because Jesus is the only source of true righteousness. And that's his point here. If you want to know about righteousness, it has to do with me. We will never be righteous through our own efforts to merit God's favor. We will never be righteous enough through our own efforts to gain entrance into God's eternal kingdom. If we want to meet God's standard of righteousness, here's what we got to do. We got to surrender our lives to Jesus Christ, the source of righteousness. And if you can't see in your past a time when you did that, now, here's how you surrender your life to Christ. If you've never done it, you, you begin by just acknowledging to God that you're a chronic sinner. That won't surprise God, by the way. To say there, there's not a day that goes by that I don't sin against you and what I think and say and, and, and do. And then you spell out what some of those sins are so God knows you're not just, you, you know, you're, it's not a, a broad brush stroke sort of thing. You really mean it. And then you acknowledge that Christ's death on the cross paid the punishment for your sin. You humbly say, Jesus, I recognize that when you died on the cross, the death you died is the death I deserve. 
And then you tell Jesus you want him to forgive you, to become your savior and the king of your life. If you've never done that, that's what it means to surrender to Christ. In fact, before this service is out across four campuses, I'm going to invite you to make that decision. If you never have before, to surrender to Christ. Now, now let me tell you something amazing about what happens to you when you surrender your, your life to Christ. He not only wipes clean your slate of sins because he paid for them on the cross, he also, you know, credits his righteousness to your account. He not only purges you of unrighteousness, he credits his righteousness to your account. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, one of my favorite Bible verses. He says, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us. In other words, he died on the cross to pay for our sins. He became sin for us so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. We get his righteousness in place of our unrighteousness. We give him our sins, we get his righteousness. If, if you're still having a hard time wrapping your mind around this exchange, let, let me give you a little analogy that I hope will, will help. And yes, I hope I stay on my stool here. Some of you were worried there. So was I. Yeah. Let's suppose you go to a car dealer this week, and you pick out the car you want, and you finally sit down with a sales rep. And he says, now, how are you going to purchase this? And you say, well, I'd like to finance the car. He says, okay, let me, you know, let me see your financial records. And he looks at him and he says, you are tens of thousands of dollars in debt. You can't buy a car. And just then, somebody's walking by and he overhears this last statement. And he turns around and he whips out a checkbook and he says, how much debt you got? And you tell him and he writes out a check for that amount and he gives it to you. This is unbelievable, right? He just cleared my debt. So you look at the car representative, the salesperson, and you say, well, let's talk about that new car now. And the sales rep says, you know, I am really happy that your debt has been eliminated, but looking at your record here, you still don't have enough money in the bank to buy this car, and you don't make enough money at work to pay it on a monthly basis. Well, the dude with the checkbook, he's turning, walk, walking away. He turns back. He comes back, and he says, how much is the car? And he writes out a check for the full amount, and he hands it to you. And he says, here, put this in your bank account. You can make monthly payments. You could pay it in one fell swoop, whatever you want to do. And he walks away. You see where this analogy is going? When you surrender your life to Christ, he not only wipes clean your debt of sin, your unrighteousness is paid for. He also deposits in your account his righteousness that will gain you entrance into God's eternal kingdom. This, is, this would be a really good place to cheer. No, really? Really? Yes. So, are you kidding me? That, that Christ not only wipes out my debt, but he gives me his righteousness. When I stand at the gate of heaven, I stand clothed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne, as an old hymn says. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And let me tell you something. If, if you're a Christ follower, you know this righteousness because the Holy Spirit convinced you of such. Okay, you, you weren't smart enough to figure this out. You weren't a basically good person. That's not why, why you came 
by God's righteousness, Christ's righteousness. It, it's, it's not because you grew up in a religious home or you grew up going to church. It's because the Holy Spirit convinced you of this. And if you've got a friend who's never surrendered to Christ, they're never going to move from lies to truth, lies about righteousness. They're never going to come to the truthful acknowledgement of their own unrighteousness and their need to import Christ's righteousness unless the Holy Spirit of God moves in them. And I would dare say right now across four campuses, some of you are sitting here because you've never surrendered to Christ. I bet the Holy Spirit is working in your heart right now and you're saying, you know, this makes sense. Well, I never knew this stuff. My slate could be wiped clean and beyond that, the righteousness of Christ can be deposited in my account. Are you kidding me? And if that's what you're thinking, it's because the Holy Spirit is doing his work right now. So, one last thing. The Holy Spirit, the great persuader, wants to convince you if you're not yet a Christ follower. If you've never surrendered to Christ, he wants to convince you of sin, wants to convince you of righteousness. Number three, he wants to convince you about judgment. Go back to John 16 one last time. Verse 8 says, The Holy Spirit will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, drop down to verse 11 to see what Jesus says about judgment. He says about judgment because the prince of this world, it's another name for Satan, Satan now stands condemned. What is Jesus saying? Well, it's important to remember the context. He's saying this just before he goes to the cross where he will win a great victory over Satan. Satan loves to keep people in bondage to their sins, but Jesus is about to make it possible for people to be set free from their sins. See, the cross was the beginning of the end for Satan. The cross was his first step in ultimate judgment. Now, if you want to read about the future judgment of Satan and his condemnation to hell, you've got to go to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 20, when you get to 20, you read about the end of time when Christ, the holy righteous judge, will sit on a great white throne and Satan will be brought in and he will be condemned and banished to hell. And if you say, yay, that's verses 7 to 10. Keep reading because in the very next verse, verse 11, it says, and then people, everybody who's ever lived, will stand before Christ on his judgment throne and he will open the books that contain every word every deed you've ever done in this life. And how many people know that's not a good thing? You know, because we've already said that we're sinful and we're unrighteousness and deserve eternal condemnation. Now, a lot of people just assume, you know, that Jesus would never, I mean, even as the judge, he would never pronounce a sentence on us. Even if you're totally unfamiliar with the Bible, you probably have heard the Bible's most famous verse, John 3, 16. You know, the dude who holds it up on the poster board of the sporting event. It begins, God so loved the world, see, love, that he gave his one and only son. And if you keep reading the very next verse, it gets even better. Verse 17 says, And God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. See, told you, no condemnation. Keep reading. The very next verse. Verse 18, And whoever believes in him, by the way, believes is a strong word in the original language of the New Testament. It doesn't mean you just agree to some facts in your head. 
It means you trust yourself to something. You, you surrender to someone. So whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe, whoever does not surrender, stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Eternal judgment is in store for those who refuse to surrender to Christ. You included. Now, I don't expect you to believe that. Even though I just read it to you right out of the Bible, right out of God's holy word, the fact is none of us would believe in God's judgment unless God's Holy Spirit convinced us it's true and it's something to be avoided at all costs. If you've not been a Christ community church very long, you may be saying right now, oh, so you're the kind of guy who preaches an angry, vindictive God, eh? Fire and brimstone. Is that what I've been saying? You know, I've been saying that we're sinful, we're unrighteousness, uh, unrighteous, and that a perfectly just God must pronounce sentence on our sins. He can't just wink at them. Be considered to be just. So what is sin's penalty? Well, the Bible says that the penalty of sin is death, not just physical death. When the Bible talks about death on this score, it's talking about spiritual death, eternal separation from God. In other words, God says, go this way, and we go our own way. We disconnect from God, who is the source of life. And when you disconnect from the source of life, you die. That's the penalty. And the job of the Holy Spirit of God is to convince you this is what is in store for you if you refuse to surrender to Christ. Why? Why is he trying to convince you of this? So that, that you'll go through life with a sense of impending doom? Just the opposite. <laughs> let, let me draw a distinction here between God's prosecuting attorney, the Holy Spirit, and your typical earthly prosecuting attorney. Okay, a prosec prosecuting attorney on this planet, he's got two goals. He wants to convict you of your crime, your sin, and he wants to see that justice is done, judgment, sentence is passed. Okay, it's a two-stage process, crime and time, right? That's the slogan of the prosecuting attorney. Do your crime, do your time. That's not God's prosecuting attorney. He's got a three-step process. Between crime and time, between sin and judgment, he puts something right in the middle. Righteousness. Yes, he wants to convict you of your sin so that you will turn in humility to Jesus Christ and say, because of what you've done on the cross, would you wash me clean of unrighteousness? And would you give me at my request, would you give me your righteousness? And if you make that decision, friend, you will never experience eternal judgment. Again, let me say, if you've come to put your faith in, in Christ, surrender to him, it's, it's not because you figured this out on your own. It's because God's spirit led you to understand sin and righteousness and judgment. And you probably have friends right now who've never surrendered to Christ. And they need the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. You know, I got a, an email from a good buddy this past week. He's a guy who helped found Christ Community Church 30 years ago. And uh, several years ago, he introduced me to a young friend of his. And he said, this guy has some God questions. So we sat down in my office and we talked about God. We talked about Christ. We talked about salvation. 
And bottom line was he didn't bite. He walked out of my office not having made any sort of decision for Christ. Well, my friend is writing this email to say to me, he said, you you remember the guy you couldn't convince to trust in Christ? He said, well, he just surrendered his life to Christ. And then he added this PS, which I loved. He said, it's just like you've been trying to convince me for 30 years. It takes the Holy Spirit to convince somebody of their need for Jesus. Absolutely. It takes the Holy Spirit to convince somebody of their need for Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have a role to play. See, the Holy Spirit has to have something to work with. So until a person has heard, has heard about sin and righteousness and judgment from somebody like you, maybe you tell it in in the form of your own story. You talk about the day when you recognized your own sinfulness, your need of a Savior, and you put your trust in Jesus and he washed away your unrighteousness and gave you his righteousness, and you know you're never going to face eternal punishment. You know, so you tell your story. Maybe you take out one of those little God's good news booklets that we're always beating the drum for around here. You know, reload if you don't have one on you. Stick it in your, in your pocket, in your purse, in your glove compartment of your car, in your backpack. Find a line that will get you the opportunity to walk a friend through it. Something like, you know, can I take 10 minutes to share with you something that's changed my life? And then just walk through that little booklet. You know, if you're wondering, how could I ever do that? We've got a class around here called Everyday Evangelism. It's a relatively short class, like a four-hour-long deal that, you know, you do in a couple of settings. Jim Kay, our pastor of evangelism, teaches it. We've had 150 people go through that class in the last couple of months because people need to hear. So the Holy Spirit then has something to work with. 